Hi, you are listening to the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. This podcast is for policymakers, governments, researchers, students, businesses, and anyone that is interested in conflict and development issues in Africa. On this podcast, we hear from experts from across Africa and the world. Your host, Dr. Michael Wangpa, will ask the questions you would want answers to. Michael Wangpa has an extensive experience spanning over a decade studying, researching, writing and consulting on conflict and development issues in Africa. Welcome to another episode on the Conflict and Development in Africa podcast. I am your host, uh, Michael Wampa. Today, we are going to explore the Boko Haram insurgency uh, in Nigeria and the effectiveness of the government's response. Uh, I am joined by a special guest, uh, Dr. Fatima Akilu. Uh, Dr. Akilu is an NHS-trained forensic psychologist uh, with over 20 years of experience in, in the field of mental health and psychology. She's an author, uh, educator, uh, former government official, education advocate, and public speaker in the areas of preventing and countering violent extremism. Uh, she's the former director of behavioral analysis and strategic communication at the Office of the National Security Advisor in Nigeria, uh, where she helped develop Nigeria's uh, first uh, countering violent extremism program. Uh, Dr. Akilu is currently the executive director of NIM Foundation, a non-governmental organization uh, founded as a direct response to, to violent extremism in, in Nigeria. Uh, Fatima, you've had uh, an impressive career so far, and I'm happy to, to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Great, great. So I, I, I'm going to ask, in, in the last 14 years, um, Nigeria and the neighboring countries in the Lake Chad Basin has been have been battling with um, a, a, a deadly insurgency, uh, the Boko Haram insurgency with the Splinter Group. Uh, and uh, the, the conflict has, you know, lasted this long. Why has it lasted this long? Um, and has the, how does that link to to the country uh, response, uh, CVE program and counterterrorism strategies. I think you asked such an excellent question. How do conflicts end? <laughs> this is the perennial question that we're all asking ourselves when we work in this conflict space. Um, conflicts end in a number of ways, as we know. Um, usually uh, starting at some point with some kind of negotiated conflict, uh, negotiated solution. Sometimes conflicts end militarily, but not that often. Um, I think there's a combination of things that can happen to end the conflict. Uh, one is a uh, negotiated settlement 
One is um, really paying attention to what victims have in, uh, endured during this conflict. Uh, so many people have been displaced, so many people have lost their livelihoods, uh, education opportunities, uh, they've lost loved ones. So in, uh, for Nigeria to be able to um, really start to heal, all those things must be addressed rather than the focus on the perpetrators of conflict. And uh, But notwithstanding, I, I think decisions must be made in terms of how we actually deal with people who have been part of the conflict. Uh, are we going to have um, a, a, a national justice mechanism that would hold them to account? Are we going to go the route of, uh, uh, for, for example, we've had in the Obuta panel here in Nigeria, so we have examples at home, or, we, or further abroad, like uh, the Truth and Reconciliation in South Africa. But we must remember that they are still uh, people who are entrenched in continuing in the conflict. So there are lots of groups that are benefiting from it. And while the conflict is uh, significantly degraded in the Northeast, we must not forget that it's expanding in the Northwest and the North Central, particularly around uh, Niger State. But uh, certainly good governance, recognition of uh, the needs of people, uh, the fact that we have so many spaces in our country that are just ungoverned without any government presence. Those must be starting points in how we address uh, the end eventually of this conflict. Oh, thank you very, very, very much. You've said uh, so many things in that very packed um, answer, and I'll just, um, I'll just speak on those things. So one of the things you've said seems to be uh, one of the criticism of uh, the government response, which, which, which is um, uh, too much focus, like you said, on, on the perpetrator and less focus on the victim. So early on, during... Uh, President Goodluck Jonathan and I think President Buhari's administration, they had a victim support fund. Well, uh, from your answer, it does seem that there's been less focus or the victims of Boko Haram have not uh, been adequately uh, paid attention. What, what is the implication of that in, in, the, in, the, in the future of that region? And then again, yes, let's, let's start from that. How does that uh, what consequence does that have on the on the conflict and peace in that region? Well, I think let's start for, uh, first of all from the fact that this is very very complicated. Uh, you know, not many countries are dealing with multiple insurgencies and um, well. Today, on the Boko Haram Islamic State West Africa province uh, generated conflict, uh, let's not forget that we have still have agitations in the Niger Delta in Nigeria uh, that's not completely 100% resolved. We have a lot of agitation in the Southeast, um, and uh, that is an ongoing conflict uh, with these uh, agitations for cessation from the country. And we have in the Southwest, we have issues of um, urban violence, um, 
cybercrime uh, trafficking across uh, the whole country. So there are multiple, multiple things that the state is uh, involved in resolving at the moment. So uh, I think we must give them a little bit of credit for that. Uh, having said that, I, um, I think more can be done in terms of putting victims at the heart of the resolution of this conflict. Uh, there's been an over-focus on a counter-terrorism approach, uh, which is militarily uh, driven uh, with the belief that if we degrade the numbers, if we kill the leadership, this conflict will end. But we have seen in other conflicts that it will not, and uh, the leadership regenerates. Um, they continue on the path. And there has to be some engagement. I also feel that there has not been enough research in terms of understanding the, well, uh, the motivations for perpetuating the conflict. I know we have a lot of research in terms of why people join um, these ideologically driven groups, but why do they remain? What maintains the movement? Uh, Boko Haram is not in the best place or is what at the moment. They have issues of uh, discipline within, within their ranks. They have uh, challenges of uh, providing food and uh, health care for uh, their members. And they have also challenges where so many people are wanting to leave the movement. How do they sustain it? How do they make them stay? So these are all uh, points, I think, of opportunity for engagement and um, continuous uh, dialogue. Um, and uh, I think so that's one, that's understanding the motivations to sustain the movement on the government side. Uh, number two, uh, as I already mentioned, uh, really uh, putting victims at the heart. Uh, this has been done, but not in a sustained systematic way. Uh, I mm. feel that the interventions are overwhelmingly on the side of the perpetrator. And I think part of it is driven by the thinking in national security, which still tends to be very militaristic, um, mm. and the focus is less on human security in, in some ways. Mm. Mm. You, you've mentioned something about uh, despite the the issues, uh, the, the the challenges that either ISWAP, uh, the splinter group from Boko Haram or Boko Haram itself, that they face internally. Uh, also the rivalry and and all of these challenges that they face that you know they they still uh, remain uh, a force to be reckoned with. Why is that so? And if I link that up to your first answer when you said uh, which I called the political economy of the conflict, you said a lot of groups are benefiting from it. Is is there a linkage? Is there a case where we can say some people are benefiting from that? And you know why? that conflict remains? Who are, who, are, who are the likely benefactors or people benefiting from this that would not want to see the end of this conflict? Well, I think uh, certainly uh, conflicts only persist because uh, they are beneficiaries. Uh, the members of Boko Haram themselves, uh, depending on uh, the level and ranking, are benefiting. Uh, they are getting power and status and resources. Uh, we are all talking about them as we speak. Uh, so <laughs> uh, they're getting attention, global attention for that matter. And there is also uh, conflict economies that develop as a result of um, unrest. 
So uh, uh, Bukaram also have their suppliers who supply them with the resources, the logistics. So there's an economy that uh, evolves around that. And um, I, I, I think it's very complicated. They are probably people in society for whatever reasons uh, benefit from uh, from conflict. If you look at it uh, globally on the global scale, uh, people who manufacture weapons always benefit from from conflicts. So there are many different uh, uh, bodies and groupings that uh, benefit from persistent conflict. Boko Haram is not an exception to that for Israel. Why, why, you, why I kind of sense you've asked uh, for a bit of sympathy towards the Nigerian government in terms of um, uh, the government dealing, the Nigerian state dealing with uh, multiple uh, fighting uh, at multiple levels at, at, at these different uh, geopolitical zones. Uh, but you also mentioned lack of governance. So can, there, can we say to some extent, that the, that the state, the Nigerian state, whether inadvertently or deliberately, is, is one of those beneficiaries. Uh, whether that lack of apps, lack of governance is is actually uh, a result of incapacity, or whether that itself is, if we if I link that up to the security vote, and how many of these states can have access to to this large uh, unaudited. Uh, funds to to tackle uh, insecurity in those states. So, can we say that the Nigerian state inadvertently or deliberately it's benefiting from from you know sustaining uh, this group? I, I think when you talk about issues of governance, um, I think for me personally, I think these are issues of choice. Um, I, I I don't think it's. Uh, rocket science to provide uh, basic structures in communities, uh, healthcare, education, uh, access to livelihood, uh, senses of inclusion, belonging, um, having policies that enable people to, uh, to uh, self-actualize uh, if you like. Uh, so why I say it's uh, issues of choice, I, I think it's cheaper to provide governance structures than to uh, invest in uh, a huge military infrastructure to keep the peace. Uh, that to me is an expensive way to, to go about it. And I don't see where it's worked anywhere in the world. I think uh, it seems that we are incapable of learning from history, uh, both uh, past and present. Uh, it's not for lack of examples. Uh, all conflicts end when people are heard, when people are listened to, when people are responded to. The things that people that live in conflict areas want is the same universally what we all want. We want to live in peace. We want to be able to uh, have health care when we're sick. We want to be able to have a form of livelihood so we can put food on our table. For, for most, we want to be able to uh, uh, afford our children with some education, even if it's basic. We want to be able to leave our front door uh, uh, and feel safe uh, walking around in our community. So these are not things that are um, difficult or complicated or impossible for a government uh, that tries to make the right choices uh, can achieve. Hmm, amazing. Speaking, speaking of speaking of those governance or those um, non-kinetic approach to dealing with um, 
with, with these insurgents and you know any other form of insecurities. In, in 2012, uh, 2015, where you know I, I did come in contact with you uh, at first, you you were the head of the behavioral analysis and strategic communication for for the for for NACTES when that's a Nigerian government um, uh, CVE uh, legislation that they were developing at the, at the, at the moment. And it, it had four streams or four levels where they, they were going to deal with first de-radicalization, deal with other kind of like psychosocial support and community-based approach. Uh, what is your opinion in, 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 what would you say is the success story of that? Because I know that's, that that program came to an end when President Buhari came into power. So, what would you say are the success stories, and what what are the failures or limitations of that of that program? Uh, well, first of all, uh, the program that I designed and implemented was not the NAC test. Uh, that was under counterterrorism. What I was involved in was developing um, um, the countering violent extremism uh, program and the preventing violent extremism program. So uh, mm. at the time, that program really looked at issues of uh, DDR, uh, uh, focusing a lot on um, reintegration, on building community cohesion. There was a big preventative element. And the, at the time that I was developing and designed this program, uh, there were not that many members of Boko Haram that had been captured at the time. There was no one that was leaving the group voluntarily. And in, in fact, we didn't have uh, huge numbers of IDPs at that time. The very first set of uh, women and children who were rescued by the military from Boko Haram captivity uh, uh, my team rehabilitated them, so there was, I think, 360-something. So what mm. we wanted to do was to develop a national infrastructure for responding to this particular type of conflict that would include uh, um, education, uh, because we felt that if you had uh, an adequate education that was fit for purpose, uh, that would allow you to think expansively and critically and it was values-based that it would become a buffer uh, mm. uh, to uh, join in uh, these groups. Uh, so we put education for the first time on the national security agenda, which allowed us to work with all the education agencies at federal, state, and local level across uh, all the states that we felt were at risk at the time. Uh, we mm. also designed the very first uh, uh, de-radicalization program. We designed a national security after I left Operation Safe Corridor, where we reached out to members of Boko Haram, including senior leadership, to leave the group and uh, so that we could rehabilitate them. But the program that I was working on had a big emphasis on victims. And uh, it was we felt that if we didn't respond to victims and we over-concentrated on perpetrators, it would be difficult to reconcile and to heal communities. So that was at the heart of everything that we did, uh, this focus on victims. So what do you do with victims? We understood that their livelihoods were, were uh, the ability to earn a living was taken away from them. We understood that there was a lot of trauma 
and uh, we understood that education had been truncated or in some instances never even started. So those were the platforms that we built on um, developing nationally. Um, and uh, I did not get the opportunity to really develop the mental health aspects of it because we had so many other priorities, including strategic communication, which we uh, were able to uh, uh, build a capability across all of government, including at the state level. So the strategic com communication uh, uh, element of it was to allow us to have um, uh, coordinated uh, messaging uh, to, to basically counteract um, the message that was going out from these ideologically based groups that were so effective at the time. And another program that we had was uh, a, probably our biggest program was on counter-radicalization. And this is a program that we felt that we had to bring all of society on board and through different platforms. And one of the platforms was really for the first time ever in Nigeria, at least, we had a uh, network of civil society and security sector actors who came together and this network was called PAVE, uh, People Against Violent Extremism. And uh, so they worked together and this really helped government in terms of the reach within communities and even in terms of sharing uh, what was going on in the communities. Government does not have the reach everywhere. So uh, that bridge between it and civil society proved to be very effective. So those were some of the things that we had tried to do. I mean, you have to remember we were only in office for three years. But we also did uh, some of the very first research, comprehensive research on Boko Haram in this country because we wanted our program to be evidence-based. We wanted an understanding. So we, we collaborated with a group of Nigerian professors from Oxford University and also Nigerian academics here in Nigeria to produce that very first piece of research that uh, really helped us lay the foundation for this program. Hmm. Uh, I, I agree with you. It was it was it was a, a, a very brilliant program that unfortunately was short lived. Uh, but but you know the, when you mentioned about the counter radicalization and uh, I, I think one of I, I think I've also had a bit of maybe in some of my writings I've had a bit of some maybe criticism of some of his uh, uh, limitations, which could be the actual connection between at the grassroots level, because some of the people I spoke with in paper at the time uh, did mention a disconnect. Like they did mention uh, a disconnect between Abuja and you know, those are the fringes, those are the like the CBOs that were later brought on to, to the program. Said so they, they, you know, they were just like a bit of an add-on rather than uh, being there from the onset as they should have been because they know people on the grassroots, they know uh, the, the terrain, they know these people, and, and they felt like there was there was a, a disconnect. Did, did, you, did you, and then again, the, the, uh, the, the victim support fund as well, they, they did say some of those funds were not reaching the victims, uh, that was more focused on administrative. So did, did you come across, did you hear any of this kind of um, challenges? Did, did it come to your notice? Okay.
just about the disconnect in the community. I, well, I'm not quite sure because, uh, as I said, my program only lasted three years and I can only speak to my own specific mm. program. And um, it took us a year to study and uh, design this program. So we only really had about a year to start to implement and we did go to multiple communities. And uh, while we can't have every single CBO in, in a program, we did, if you're talking about the PAVE network, we tried to have a selection and it was uh, civil society and NGOs that recommended others that were working in the space. At the time that we started this work, if you remember, there weren't many people that were working in this area at all. I mean, now there's a lot of yes. NGOs, but yes. at, in 2012, they were not. So, um, I, I, we did our best to be inclusive, but I think how inclusive can a program that really was only implemented in a year be? It was a pilot. Uh, had we remained, it would have been scaled up, uh, definitely. The victim support is something totally different. It wasn't under the national security remit. This was an independent fund that was set up by the president. So I can't really comment on that because I don't really have that much information on it. Brilliant. Speak, speaking of the DDR program, uh, and also looking at the work that you do at NIM with, with women in, in Boko Haram, whether women as victims or whether women uh, wives of uh, uh, you know, Boko Haram commandants, do, do you think the DDR program, because again, you, you mentioned the Niger Delta, one of the things in the Niger Delta amnesty is we, we've seen in the nearly 30,000 uh, former militants that were granted amnesty, maybe about 1% were women, if any at all. But in, in the Operation Safe Corridor and in the DDR program in the Northeast, uh, do, do you think that is inclusive in terms of uh, the women that may have voluntarily or been coerced into this, or women as victims? Do, do you think they're being represented in that program? Well, I can't really speak to that program because I'm... I... I'm not that involved in that program, but what I can say is that um, generally we have tended to look at women as victims regardless. Uh, throughout my time working in this space from 2012, uh, whereas we've seen uh, some women who have joined voluntarily, we've seen Okay, brilliant. So I, I, I was talking about the DDR program and how inclusive it is when, when, it, when it comes to like women. Uh, and I was comparing that to the Niger Delta where perhaps maybe less than 1% of uh, women were included in that amnesty program. So how, how do you think uh, with your experience working with um, wives of Boko Haram commanders and uh, women victims or women perpetrators in those regions, how do you think the DDR program in the Nazis, uh, the Operation Safe Corridor particularly, uh, is inclusive? Uh, how does it cover uh, women in, those, in, in the conflict? Well, I think the way that we think about women generally, I think also shapes our response to women that are part of conflict. Uh, women are universally in Nigeria seen as victims. Uh, so when you have uh, women who have pay, played key roles uh, in the conflict, they often don't go through the same route as the men. While there are some 
women who have been incarcerated uh, and held in military detention, the numbers are very low. Uh, the numbers of women going through a rehabilitation program in Operation Safe Corridor similarly are very low. Um, my own program where it's the only program in this country that has tried to rehabilitate uh, wives of uh, Boko Haram members who have played senior roles within the movement uh, has shown that women have their own agency. Uh, women play all sorts of roles. Um, uh, we had women there who were very proficient in weapons assembly. We had women who were uh, key in, in recruiting and uh, helping train uh, female suicide bombers. Uh, we had uh, women who, in very small instances, also led um, uh, in uh, raids in villages and communities. So uh, um, women have played multiple roles, uh, uh, and yet, uh, despite that, they continue to be seen universally as victims. Uh, I would say that we need a lot more data, a lot more research uh, on the actual role that uh, women have played in this um, conflict and in this insurgency. Uh, I would say that women who were active combatants and uh, actively involved in shaping uh, the belief systems uh, within these movements are small, but nevertheless, they require uh, some uh, special attention, uh, which we're not getting. So usually the route for women out of the movement is very different from the route for men. Uh, uh, women mostly uh, go back into communities, sometimes uh, after some engagement, uh, other times without engagement, and we are yet to know uh, what happens in those communities over time, whether those women continue to uh, spread uh, this ideology, whether they try to uh, recruit people within their communities. Um, we, we don't know. Uh, so there's a lot of blank spaces in both the rehabilitation, reintegration um, of women that are coming out of this movement at the moment. Oh, amazing! That that is, uh, that is uh, because I did um uh well looking at that like Riley said there's there's need for for data and and one of the things that you've rightly said is uh, women are largely not just in Nigeria uh, uh, in, in most places largely presented as victims and I think that that also has uh, an adverse impact on how policies are being designed uh, whereas. Uh, it doesn't capture uh, the inadequately the role or the vast role or, or the comprehensive role that women play when it comes to to, to conflict. I think it's a missed opportunity uh, in terms of how we can design or even integrate uh, women into the design designing of of some of this program. Uh, but but one other thing you said earlier on was that while Boko Haram may have been degraded in the northeast, it has expanded. Uh, to the to the northwest, I, I, I was thinking that there's there's a pressure between what we're having in the northwest, but you know, quite surprised to hear you know that Bukhara might be expanding. Is there a link? Is that is that a banditry and the is, is there a link between Bukhara and the insecurity you know in the in the northwest? I, I think people sometimes um, 
forget that Boko Haram has been in the Northwest for a long time. And Suru has been operating in the Northwest um, from probably the early 90s, in, uh, well, 2000s at least. Um, so it's not new. Uh, what seems to be happening in the north uh, west is rather than Boko Haram, it's, it seems like it's a branch of Islamic State, West Africa province. Uh, and it's not just in the northwest, they're also very active in the north um, central, especially in Niger State. Um, they are groups of uh, bandits who have their own separate um, agitations or reasons. Uh, for their own types of insurgency. And uh, yes, they, it's uh, some cooperation from time to time with uh, these different terrorist groups in the Northwest, but they, for the most part, are distinct groups. Hmm. Hmm. There's that, that, something you mentioned, Elion. Uh, one of the uh, impact of of the program that was shortly, the CVE program, is you, you didn't have the opportunity to, to develop the mental health uh, aspect of the program. What, what implication do you think that has for the future of that region, considering you know, the, the huge psychological impact on uh, most especially women and children and others that have endured you know, immense suffering in the last, uh, um, coming up to 20 years of that insurgency? What, what, what is that? What is the scale? What, what are we looking at in, in, the, in the near future considering this you know, psychological impact? Well, the mental health need is great. Uh, there's immense trauma um, across the whole country, most especially in conflict-prone areas. Um, the trauma is not confined to conflict. Even people who have been um, subjected to climate change uh, lost homes due to flooding, um, uh, loss of livelihood due to desert encroachment, so many reasons. They are also suffering from trauma. So, yes, I I think if you ask me what would I have done differently when I was working in government, I think I would have put a lot more emphasis and focus on psychological interventions. At the time, we did try, but you know, this is we're talking about 10 years ago. Uh, people didn't want to hear about psychology. We were not talking about mental health in the same way that we were today. So it's not for lack of trying. Uh, we did try to put it on the agenda, but we got a lot of pushback at the time. People thought that other things should have priority. So uh, I'm happy to say two things have happened since then. Uh, one, um, the whole world is now talking about mental health, so that's a good thing for yeah. us. And there is more um, understanding and acknowledgement of the, its importance here in Nigeria. Um, the mental health bill was finally uh, passed, um, and the National Mental Health Act mm. 2021. And uh, they are currently developing a policy for uh, that would allow for universal health coverage for mental health in Nigeria. Uh, when I was in government, we worked with the National Primary Health Care Agency, which was responsible for primary care health care across the country on a mental health policy. The idea was that we would uh, train thousands. At the time, I think we estimated about a 7,000 workforce nationwide mm. on uh, the ability to provide uh, mental health support through lay counseling 
and this would be their community health workers uh, and, and stuff that would be able to provide it. Had we been able to do that at that time, I think it would have been a game changing for this country because that would mean mm -hmm. that everywhere in every local government, there would be people who would be able to provide mental health support. Uh, mm. So uh, I, I pray and hope that the government will still <laughs> go down that route. But for me, uh, through NIM, we've been able to make a lot of headway through uh, on mental health. Mm. Uh, we uh, years ago we started to incorporate mental health into peace building, and now it's getting global attention. Other agencies are also doing it, like mm. the UNDP uh, and stuff. Uh, we found that uh, when you do peace building with uh, uh, trauma support, uh, it's much more effective. We're also training what we hope will be a generational capacity of lay counselors. We're developing curriculums and we are this year uh, putting up a, tra a training academy at NIM uh, for the next generation mental health providers so in a way yes i wasn't able to do it then but um i'm doing it now i might not be able to do it at the scale that i would have been able to do with government but i think that there's opportunities uh for uh, for us um in and out of government uh, and uh, the aim is that we work uh with government to try and scale up some of these initiatives but it's not impossible. It's not out of reach. I think mm. uh, within my lifetime, we could have a mental health uh, service provision in every local government. Uh, at least that's my hope. Yeah, the, 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 yeah we, we've like we've come we've come a long way, and and I think we, in all fairness, we we have to also celebrate little milestone. Like I said, from two thousand and twelve till now, there's been there's been some improvement. So that has to be acknowledged. Uh, before I come to the last questions, what, what do you think it's what do you think are the greatest threats to defeating you know insurgency in 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 the in the north 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 region, not even just the northeast? What are the greatest threats, or maybe even in Nigeria as a whole? You know, I think the greatest threats are us humans and how we behave. I I think that. Um, as we become more intolerant, not just in Nigeria, but globally, and we become more tribal. Uh, we live more in silos of our own opinions. We don't talk anymore. We don't listen to each other. We create divisions everywhere. And I also feel that um, the global leadership is waning. Uh, moral uh, leadership is just not um, there in the way that you need it. So um, people who will step in and say, we choose peace. I think what we see globally is um, this over ramping up of counterterrorism approaches at the expense of human uh, humanitarian needs. And sometimes we forget that when people suffer just because they're not in our neighborhood, that they're not human because they're a bit removed from us. But I always think that if you don't quench the problem far away tomorrow, it'll be in your own house. And I think um, there is no, I don't see a way
must uh, make the choice uh, to choose peace. And choosing peace means that we must be willing to share resources, we must be willing to uh, provide uh, support where it's needed, there must be good governance, there must be accountability, there must be social justice so that people feel that they're heard. I think that could be a start. Hmm. You, you've touched on, you've actually touched on uh, uh, the last question, but, but I wanted to, to expand on it. It's like, how can we achieve durable peace in the region, like a more practical sense? I, I think if anybody had the answer <laughs> to that question, <laughs> we, wouldn't need, we wouldn't need to be talking at all. Um, honestly, it is, it is, uh, myself, it is a, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, you go ahead. <laughs> it's one of those intractable problems of our time. I, I think... Um, Part of it is a question of resource allocation, where we're living in a time when resources are dwindling in our country. We don't want There, it's, it's held on for now. We're nearly there. Yeah, go on. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, I I don't know where where were we? I, I was um, I, I think you're talking about dwindling resources and okay. And I, I I said in our own country, uh, we're not willing to really have the hard conversations that we need to have. One population population is out of control. Uh, population is only an asset if we have the resources to cater for for that population and if that population is fit for purpose in advancing the nation uh, at the moment uh, a lot of the numbers that we have really require more support than the state can give we are not having honest uh, discussions about uh, artificial in my opinion divisions that are so deep into our psyche uh, like religion and ethnicity and why they matter so much. Uh, diversity is good, but not if diversity becomes uh, the, the thing that drives us into uh, perpetual conflict. Then diversity um, should be managed or discussed in a different way. There are other countries where uh, diversity is not at the forefront uh, and they've had to make some hard decisions about what they need to achieve peace, like Rwanda after, after their conflict. I'm not saying it's the most ideal model, but it is a model. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of the day, fundamentally, we just need to decide that we want to choose peace. Thank you, thank you very much. I, I see why you said um, at the beginning that uh, is a choice, uh, and, and and it's in the hands of the human. It's a, it's a choice. It has to be a conscious choice uh, that we make to to choose peace. Uh, it's also a conscious choice to. And one of the key things you've said is it's easier, it's cheaper to provide governance. It's easier to provide uh, the basic needs than investing in you know, expensive, high-tech military infrastructures to, 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 to have peace. 
we are indeed very, very grateful, uh, Dr. Fatima Kilo, for, for your illuminating insights into uh, Nigeria's, what has turned to Nigeria's um, long-standing insurgency. It's been going on for more than a decade now and how the government has been responding to it and some of the uh, you know, successes we've had with those responses were you know some of the limitations are what needs to be to be done. I'm really, really grateful. We're grateful to have you uh, on on this episode, and uh, we really, really enjoyed your insights. Thank you very, very, very much. I really appreciate. Thank you for tuning in today. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Fatima uh, Akilu. Um, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and stay tuned uh, for the next episode. Have a great day.